Hello, fellow grievers. You have found the leftover pieces, Suicide Lost Conversations, and I am Melissa, your podcast host. Join me for real conversations and candid talk on hard topics surrounding the loss of a loved one to suicide. I talk with other lost survivors, mental health experts, advocates, and sometimes I offer my own thoughts. Every week we explore the questions that haunt us, seek the courage to uncover the healing tools within us, and hopefully offer the comfort of a community that we all need so very much. It's true our hearts and lives have been shattered, but come along with me and together let's choose to find meaning and even happiness amid the leftover pieces before us. Welcome. Welcome grievers. Today you have found season one, episode 22 of the leftover pieces podcast. Today I have a very candid conversation with Joey Dumont. Joey is a self-professed recovering egoist who lost his younger brother to suicide in 2007, who by his own words didn't really deal with the loss of his brother until the one-year anniversary when it kind of all came crashing in. And at that point, he was forced to come face-to-face with his own anxiety and PTSD, among other things. Joey starts by telling us a little bit about his history, where he and his brothers all suffered at the hands of a narcissistic father. And while it manifested itself a little differently in all three of them, they all struggled with things like alcohol abuse and different forms of escape. Joey shares with us how and when he got therapy and how it helped him, how his brain had been altered by everything that he had been through. We talk about men and male vulnerability, and we do have a very honest discussion about our generation and the heroes that young boys had that shaped them into men who felt like they had to just get over it when things were bad. Joey built a life for himself that included becoming a very successful person in the field of advertising, and he talks about how we still reward masculine arrogance in our society and how it can be extremely hard to extract yourself from that as a man. But on the other side of that, he now is able to admit when there's sadness and face fear without shame. And he seems to embrace new heroes of sorts because he talks about how his podcast that's called Laugh Your Cry Out takes the angle of men like Larry David, who have made a career out of laughing and joking about their own anxiety and shortcomings. In other words, he wants people to laugh with him, not at him, where his own anxiety and mental health challenges are concerned. And I can't say that I disagree with laughter is always great medicine. So pull up a chair and join Joey and I today for a very important conversation. Welcome, Joey. Thanks so much for being here today. Well, thanks for having me, Melissa. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's my honor. And um, I know that I've already told everybody a little bit about you. So what I'd like to do now is start with your last story as it pertains to suicide and feel free to you know, work anything else in that you want regarding loss in your life. And mm-hmm. just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I, I lost my little brother to depression in 2007. Um, we grew up in Minnesota and my mom and dad split when I was eight. 
my older brother, I was seven, my older brother was eight, and my little brother Stevie uh, was two, almost two. And my dad moved to California. And the quick and dirty on that is that my father is a narcissistic personality disorder candidate. Um, he lived a very shallow existence and my poor little Minnesota mom didn't really understand who she married. Um, and back in the seventies, divorce was not something that you did easily. So their decision to actually split up was a big deal. Um, and so my little brother really never knew my dad. He left when he was just in diapers and he spent about 10 days a year with us. Um, when he had vacation in the summer and when he had vacation in the winter. Um, and even then, because my older brother and I were so close, my dad spent a lot of time with us playing basketball and football and things like that. Um, and my little brother just never really got this relationship with my dad. And I share that because it's very important to know <clears throat> that my brother had some issues uh, of abuse with my dad. And I don't want to go into all that just because it's really not relevant. Um, what took place with their relationship was emotional abuse. It wasn't physical, to be clear. Um, it was cruel and it was unusual. And over the years, um, my mom remained uh, without uh, getting remarried. And years later, my dad um, came and took me away when I was 14. And he's, he's he been telling me that I was his favorite son for many years, even in front of my other brothers. And he wanted me to live with him in California. So I left. And that was the first time I'd ever been away from my brothers. And that was really tough on Stevie. And it was really tough on Paul, my older brother. And obviously it was very hard on my mom. And I got out to California and my dad, um, before I left, my dad married someone that he knew for 21 days. She was also um, mentally ill, which kind of like kind of tracks there. <laughs> And uh, they, they continued to abuse me uh, for about seven months. I moved back with my mom and my little brother and my older brother, and it was great. Everything was cool. Um, we had about maybe another year together, and then my mom fell in love with someone. Um, and he also happened to be a raging alcoholic and not a real good father figure. And he had three kids, and they moved us all in together. And because he was blotto drunk, almost every night. He was very um, aggressive and powerful and scary, especially to my little brother, who was only, I think, nine at the time. And so Stevie started drinking. And he started drinking because he realized that his reality was too painful. And he just didn't have the coping mechanisms to deal with all of the abuse that he's had, um, both from his father and then from his new stepfather. And we didn't know this as a family. Uh, we found this out later. And the alcohol then graduated to a panoply of other drugs um, over the years, uh, which included heroin, methamphetamine, uh, marijuana, uh, crack, you know, whatever he get his hands on. Um, but his drug of choice was alcohol. Uh, and he drank copious amounts for a long time. And so his childhood um, was kind of over. And I don't know if you know what abuse alcohol abuse does to kids, but it actually, uh, it retards their growth. So they actually don't mature. If you start abusing drugs, your brain kind of shuts off at that point. So he remained about 13 <laughs> forever. He just never grew out of that. Um, and then as he started to address life, 
you know, getting a job after high school. He fell, he fell in love, got married um, to his high school sweetheart. She was also a drug addict. Um, so then they did a bunch of drugs together. That marriage was a disaster. Um, it didn't last very long. And throughout these years, he did the same thing. He just kept abusing drugs, alcohol, because he needed to distract himself from his reality. And then the problem with that type of upbringing and experience is he didn't have any good places to to refer back to. You know, he didn't have the memories my older brother and I had, where at least we believed my parents were happy. You know, we lived in a little uh, three-bedroom Lambler in, in Rochester, Minnesota. It was a cute little house. We had a backyard. We had friends. We had kids in the neighborhood. We skateboarded and played. You know, we did all the cool stuff um, that you see in any movies from the 70s. Um, and then uh, fast forward to April 1st, 2007. Um, I was in a financial position that I could finally move my little brother out to California. Uh, my brother, my older brother and I had lived out there for many years now. And because Stevie was bouncing back and forth in between, you know, rehab centers, um, jail, in and out of jail, he then um, came out to move with me. And I said, hey, bud, we're going to get you clean. We're going we're gonna to move on. And uh, he hung out with us for about 10 days. He came to my office and he hung out with my friends. We went to lunch. And I told him I was going to go for a motorcycle ride. And once I did that, I came back home and I walked in my apartment and I said, Hey buddy, you know, let's get some pizza. And I didn't hear anything from him. So I walked down the hall and, uh, I saw he was in the bathroom. And so I kicked the door open with my foot just to make a joke and saw him, uh, floating upside down, purple and blue. Uh, and he was dead. And his, he had an aerosol can uh, perched on the sink, which at the time I didn't know what that was, but um, it's called huffing. And it's when there's a refrigeration propellant inside these cans. And when you remove them, you can huff, you can actually click to inhale and you inhale that refrigeration propellant. And it does, um, it removes a lot of the oxygen from your lungs and it causes uh, severe brain alteration for four or five hours, uh, which was the drug that um, I guess he was using. We didn't know. Um, and when I attempted to give him mouth to mouth resuscitation, he tasted of wine and Tums. So he wasn't clean. He promised, you know, he was clean, which that's kind of with any addict, you know, they always promise they're going to do things. Um, and this was the first, you know, the actual literal last time I tried to save his life. You know, when you have an addict in your life, um, someone who is, he suffered from bipolar disorder. So he was all over the map and I couldn't save him. I don't know exactly how long he'd been there, but he was cold as baloney. And I called 911. I don't remember any of that call. And from that, the paramedics rushed in, tried to save his life. It didn't work. And then I just remember calling my older brother um, who was in Hawaii. He was a gymnastics coach while he was in law school. And I said, Stevie's dead. And uh, he said, uh, are you sure? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And I, I need you to call mom because I can't, I can't, I can't listen to her wail. And when, uh, when he did call mom, that's exactly what happened. She 
fell to her knees and, you know, cried and never stopped crying really. Um, so that was the, that was the moment where our family changed. And I know that you've gone through this too, Melissa. So, um, you understand it and I can't, you know, understand what you've gone through as a mommy, because as a brother, it's terrible to lose a sibling. Um, but as a daddy, you know, I have two kids now. Um, there's a, there's a big difference. And that difference is clear every time I look at my mom. You know, it's, it's been 13 years and she still wants Stevie. She still wants to hug him. She still wants to see him. Um, and, you know, she has two boys here on planet Earth and she still wants to go to heaven. She's a devout Catholic and believes Stevie's there waiting for her which I hope is true. <laughs> um, and when she does get there, she'll be reuni reunited with her, her baby boy. Uh, but that was, that was the event that forever changed our lives. <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, it never ceases to amaze me that there just isn't adequate words. There's so much that we could say, and yet none of it seems to cover this experience. No. No, uh, there are no words. And, you know, you have friends that call you up and they say things like, I know how you feel because they're trying to be comforting. And you know, there's an anger piece that comes along with this through the recovery phase. And, you know, piece of you is like, what do you mean you know how I feel? Did you, did you walk in and find your dead brother? No. Okay. And obviously I didn't say that to anybody, but um, anger did bring that up. Uh, when that happened. And these are all dear friends of mine too, that are trying to help out. It's just one of those things where they don't know what to say. Um, no one knows what to say. And if there's one silver lining of this, of my little brother's death, it's, I can now be that person. So I've had friends recently who've lost kids to suicide and I reach out and just let them know, Hey, I'm here. I've been there. I didn't lose a child, but I lost my little brother. And I understand how hard it is to deal with something this traumatic. And there is a piece to that level of empathy, that level of pain that is comforting to other people. So that has been the thing for me. And I, that's why I was more than happy to come on your show and talk, because I think if, if anybody out there is listening and has lost, you know, a child or a sibling or a husband or a wife or any of that to depression, you're not alone. And there are groups out there that help. And I don't know if you belong to any of those, but my mom actually joined a group for survivors of child loss. And it's, it's one of those, um, it's not Teen Challenge, that was the group. I can't remember the name, it'll come to me. But it's been very comforting for her because she gets to go to these meetings and they talk. And they talk about the loss of their child and they get to, they're with people that actually want to hear the story. They're, they're with people that don't physically move back when you start talking. They're with right. people that understand the, the pain that you're going through. And so that's, that's been very neat for my mom. And I think community in general is very important for this. It, it's, you, have to, you have to remember you're not alone. There's sadly way too many people out there that, that belong to this. Right. And it, it's so true. And that's one of my top three reasons for having the podcast is to give 
a community where it's so desperately needed because there's nothing more lonely than this grief. And yet there's so many more people than we realize that are also feeling that lonely. And Mm -hmm. because I, within about two or three months of losing my son, was the first time I met another mother who had lost their child to suicide. And the power in that connection from the moment we locked eyes was something that I'll never forget. I'm still friends with that woman. Um, We wish that we weren't friends for the reason that we are, but there's, there really, that's one of the things I advocate a lot for in multiple episodes of my podcast is for people to as quickly as they can find a community of sorts. And you may not find the one that will serve you forever. You may not even find the right one in the beginning because there's support groups, there's online groups, there's Mm -hmm. um, national groups, there's, uh, you know, specific to child loss or specific to suicide loss or both. And so you have to kind of find what works for you. I ended up finding a lot of comfort in, in lost podcasts and different things like that. Part of the reason I started this one was unfortunately, I couldn't really find a podcast specific to suicide loss. I could find child loss. Hmm. I could find loss. The stigma that exists, whether we want to, whether others want to admit it or not, it's still there. And you touched on something that I'd like you to expand on. You touched on a couple of things I'd like you to expand on. But one of the reasons, and I told you this before we started recording, was that conversations with men to men are important to me. And be, maybe because I'm a mother, I tend to draw other mothers more easily and or other females. I also think, and you, this is one of the things I want you to expand on, is <laughs> women are more willing to talk about a lot of this stuff because a lot of this goes back to, and we'll circle back around and talk about um, some of the projects that you have and the reasons that you're on here. But that's one of the things you exist to do now is to draw attention to the male ego. Because like I said, in your introduction, you're kind of a self-proclaimed former recovering, whatever words I've heard you put both on it. Um, yeah. Pretentious egoist who, uh, who for a long time masked his anxiety and his depression and all of your own fears and neuroses. And, and because of your two little boys, you have embraced parts of you that you ignored for many years in order to be able to uh, leave a real legacy for them. So I want to address, you know, how we get, how we start to get real with men and maybe back it up by how did your brother's suicide affect you initially versus how you handle it now. And as a mother, I long for and need to hear how this affects siblings, because obviously I'm a mother to siblings, meaning my two children were left without their brother as well. Yeah, I, I, the, I didn't deal with it, so let's just put it that way. I, the first thing that hit me with Stevie's death was even over his body as I was crying, there was some relief. And that I talked about in therapy uh, later. Um, and the relief came from that every single time a phone call after 9 o'clock from Minnesota, it was my mom or it was... Stevie in jail, or it was some major uh, calamity in his life. And you're, I was constantly worried about him uh, ending up in the gutter, ending up in prison. And he'd had four DUIs. Um, and so the next one actually was going to land him in federal prison. And my mom called me, you know, late at night. And Stevie had got in another car accident. And I said, the first question I said, did he hurt anybody? And she said, yes, possibly. 
we're not sure they took the car to the hospital and I, and I fell to my knees and I remember thinking he's going to prison. And Stevie was this really sweet, loving kid behind all of this anger and drunk and, and, you know, he was poisoning himself all the time. And fortunately something happened. They lost a record. <laughs> he didn't go to prison. Um, it was like, you know, my mom thought it was an act of God, which I was happy to believe. Um, but I didn't deal with it. And so for the next year, as I mentioned earlier, I was in my career in the advertising world. So I was traveling all over the country. Um, and I just buried myself in alcohol and girls and fancy hotels and partying. Didn't deal with it. And then the anniversary date came around. And I'm, I know you're very used to that or aware of what that means. I wasn't at the time. And it hit me like a baseball bat. And that, that was the first time I had to go to talk to a therapist and deal with that loss and deal with the PTSD and deal with everything else that came with that. Um, and as far as it goes to like how do men deal with things? I, you know, where I grew up, uh, to be clear, I'm 54. I grew up in Minnesota and you know, the, my heroes growing up were, you know, television Westerns and John Wayne and James Bond and Sam Malone on cheers. And, you know, I mean, there were no, like our role models were different back then. Mm -hmm. Um, you We're know, the same we age, the, so I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had the Dean Martin roast, right? You know, mm -hmm. so my mm -hmm. mom would watch those. And <laughs> and this was all of these wonderfully celebrated Hollywood characters and the Rat Pack. And, you know, we had Foster Brooks, who was, you know, a he made a whole career out of being a drunk. Um, and, you know, so you just kind of hold, you keep everything down, right? Um, there's not, there wasn't a lot of sharing going on with men right. at that point. And, you know, and then men, a lot of men in Minnesota, they call themselves Minnesota men. They live in God's country. They hunt, they fish, um, you know, they're, they cut down trees. They do cool stuff. I didn't have a dad growing up and my mom was fastidious. And so I'm was very clean. And I don't like getting dirty and I get my hands dirty. And I was just, you know, I wasn't very macho. So maybe this is where that kind of ended up. Whereas like, well, I don't want to admit that I'm scared. Or I don't want to admit that I'm sad that my little brother's no longer here. Uh, and so I started to unpeel a lot of that in therapy where, you know, you sit down and talk and I told her about Stevie, my therapist. And then we went right into my dad and we started talking about my dad. And she asked me a lot of questions like, did he do this? And did he do that? And I'm like, how, wow, how did you know? And she's like, cause she specialized in NPD and, and that's why I, I sought her out as a therapist. And so it was one of those things. I was like, oh, okay, so this is the behavior that comes from that, from the kids. And you're like, yeah, if you don't, if your parent is hurting you on purpose, then your brain actually, the neuroplasticity of your brain is altered, right? You actually change who you are. Um, and my older brother suffers from chronic depression. Uh, and because my dad was mentally ill, there's, there's a, a both a nature and a nurture discussion that happened here. Um, I definitely believe because I suffer from episodic depression and chronic anxiety that there's a little bit of both. And so kind of unwinding all of that and how it works through talk therapy, um, I tried medication, it didn't work. Um, but what really started to change for me, you know, years later was admitting that I was, I was sad, admitting that I was scared of life at some, at certain points, um, having these conversations with my mom, you know, we didn't even talk about suicide as a family. 
Um, and I didn't even really categorize it as suicide until my therapist did, you know, what, did he have self-harm? And I said, oh yeah, <laughs> he was, you know, he talked about killing himself. He talked about not wanting to be here. Um, he would, he would suffer these horrible, um, you know, moods where he wouldn't get out of bed for a week at a time or two weeks at a time. And then when he did come out of that, he would be manic and he would be, you know, he wouldn't sleep for a week and he would tell us that he was going to start companies and be the president of the United States and, you know, just crazy stuff. And, and when going to therapy with him and, and listening to some of his counselors, when we visited the centers, you know, they couldn't really get his medication going because, um, he was so drunk, you know, and if you're trying to balance cocktails of, you know, Zoloft or Klonopin or whatever you're trying to help your patient with, they can't drink. And if they're a raging alcoholic, then you can't really help them with medication, right? Um, so I think that the the male discussion didn't even take place even till recently. As I mentioned to you earlier, um, I left my corporate career three years ago to write a book about my life with my dad and my family. And um, my little brother was the opening chapter. And as I wrote about his funeral, uh, I sobbed the whole time I wrote it. And then as I wrote about the actual event of me walking in and finding him, I'd never actually sat down and did that. I've never spent the time to sit with the pain, right? I never actually like dealt with it. And I don't know, I don't want to say that specifically male, but I think it was a part of my upbringing, you know, when you cry or when you're hurt, you know, your, your male counterparts are like, man up, you know, that's one of those things. Um, get over it is another thing. Uh, get through this. This is, you know, this is life. And, you know, all those things I think to some degree are okay. Um, if you're an athlete and you get, you know, crushed on the football field, I think that's okay for your coach to say, Hey, get up, you know, be a man. You know, this is why we got you on the team. That's, that's one thing. But you know, if you find your little brother dead, um, it's not something that you should say, you know, Hey, man up. Um, and then what you found out too, when you lost your son is that society, I'm not, uh, saying this is society's fault. It's just what it is, is that they give you a couple weeks to get over it. You know, your job, your friends, your family, um, and you kind of need to get back to life and you kind of need to move on and all, you know, all the bromides that are thrown at you. Um, and I did, I, I kind of just buried a lot of it. And, you know, only, I think only after I became a father and started to deal with all of this, did I really start to understand that I was hiding a lot of my own pain based on being a guy, based on machismo um, and vulnerability isn't a weakness. I think it's a strength. And that's something that took me a long time to understand as well, is that you have to, you have to admit when you're scared, you have to admit when you're wrong. Um, and it's, it's shedding a persona. I think that was very hard for me, uh, because the world in the business world included, um, if you're arrogant and you're confident and, you know, it's kind of like often wrong, but never in doubt, kind of, you know, approach to the world. Um, two things happen. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, when you were young, you dated the bad boy and, and a lot of my female friends did the same thing. And then they ended up marrying the good guy, you know, the, the guy that actually did his homework and it was nice to his mom. And, um, I was an athlete 
I was very proud of myself. I was very good shape. I liked my body. Um, I, I was the center of attention at parties and I loved the attention that I got from females, whatever the neurosis was. I, you know, I, I don't want a lot of that in therapy, but arrogance works to get female attention. And then what I found out also is that arrogance works in the world of business. And if you can come across, like, you know, all the answers and everything's there and you're the guy, um, when a company needs whatever they need, they need you, um, you'll be rewarded for that. You'll be rewarded with female attention and you'll be rewarded with large paychecks. And so it's really hard <laughs> to extract yourself from all of these societal constructs around what it means to be a man. And as you continue to look you know, at a society today, um, we worship captains of industry, right? Um, if you look on the news, the people we look up to are Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Bill Gates. And, you know, these are all men, job creators is what we call them in our society. Uh, my little boy's third grade teacher, Mr. Lee, uh, was the teacher of the year in California last year. And he's a great man, uh, highly educated. And my kids go to a Mandarin immersion school. So he speaks, you know, fluent Chinese or fluent Mandarin and English and very hard to find someone of that caliber. And do we look up to that guy as a society? I mean, the answer is no. If right. you equate our importance with pay. Um, and so, you know, there's just so much Melissa around this and I could probably, I'm probably going off on a tangent here, but the, the meta of all this is that you're taught by our society and my family specifically to, to be male, to be strong, to be stoic, to get through things, uh, to be there, to be strong for your family, your wife, your kids, your parents, whatever it may be. Uh, and when you do get rattled, by something as traumatic as uh, suicide or loss of family mate, you, it's okay to collapse. It's okay to reach out to people that you love. It's okay to admit that you're terrified, that you have feelings that you don't understand. Um, I started having panic attacks as early as 14 um, when I was rambling on in the beginning about my upbringing with my dad. That <clears throat> you know, even when I was talking there, it started screwing me up. I'm calm now, but <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's one of those things where my body starts to react every time I do this. And I even talked about this with my coach the other day, that, that, that uh, presentation you watched with the Mankind Project, I was rambling for three minutes because I couldn't calm down. Um, my heart was racing and I was just trying to answer one simple question. And I talked for three minutes, you know, and my joke to my to my coach. He goes, how'd it go? And I said, oh man, dude. <laughs> I said, I rambled on for three minutes with one question. And he goes, oh. And I said, yeah. I said, you know who else rambles on for three minutes after one question? A meth head in the back of a cop car. That's about the only person I can equate that to. So like it, I, it takes me a while to actually, and he goes, Joey, you're not used to talking about this stuff, right? You're used to being on stage talking about advertising and documentaries and things that you know. And I was like, oh, that's a really good point. And, and I did it again here. I, I wanted to answer a quick early question and my body started racing. So it's kind of neat that I, this is very meta, by the way, that I'm now like <laughs> dealing with my anxiety on a call about anxiety, <laughs> right? And it's, it, it's one of those things where 
it's the most freedom I can possibly share with you that I can tell you that I have anxiety. I mean, it's gone now, but it, it three minutes ago, it was <laughs> rushing through my body. Um, that's a part of what I think I can get across to people. That's the hope with these kind of conversations is that when someone listens to this and or the 10,000 people that listen to the Mankind Project, I don't know if you saw any of the comments, but <laughs> they were like, I thought the Mankind Project was supposed to be about evolved human beings and who is this douchebag and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, and then like 20 minutes in, we kind of settled in and we had a really good conversation. And then the comments, I fortunately didn't see them because I would have had a panic attack there. But it was, oh, okay, this guy's nice. Or, or this guy's kind of found his, his place today. And, and well, I see why you brought him on, right? Um, and that is not male, historically. It's not okay to admit you're scared. It's not okay to admit that you don't know what's going on um, and that you're reaching out to somebody. So yeah, long diatribe there. <laughs> I think that's all part of uh, the, the journey I've been going through is trying to just rediscover who I really am uh, and shed all the personas, the armor, if you will. Well, and there's a couple of levels to that as you're talking that I'm thinking about, because there's there's two pieces as I see it. There's the manhood, the the ego of the, the male persona that you're addressing as a as a griever, as a brother, as someone who's mm -hmm. experienced this loss and has his own issues with the, you know, air quotes, because yeah, we could name all of them if we wanted to, but you know, there's that. And then there's, well, there's probably three things. So then there's Joey, the dad, who mm -hmm. then wants to redefine manhood yes. to his sons so that if they find themselves at 21 where my son was, because it's so generational to look and realize that my 21-year-old son, we should have been more evolved. Okay, so I was raised, you know, I was a baby of the of the late 60s, raised in the 70s and early 80s as well. My dad was not a hunter or any of that either. I was raised in the Midwest as well, but it wasn't, I didn't think he was a real machismo-y type person, but I look back to his upbringing and in Iowa and rural Iowa and definitely the male person, you know, there's just certain things you didn't do. And I never saw my dad shed a tear to my knowledge that I have any memory of until he was uh, dying of cancer at age 48. And he was diagnosed and gone within four months. It was a really whirlwind wow. type of a situation. But I later learned that that's what sometimes those illnesses do. They cause that emotion <laughs> to come out. So I had never seen him be what we want to perceive as weak. Um, yeah. It's not weakness, but no. it goes back to that idea. And so whether we like it or not, you know, I my I had my started have my kids in my mid twenties as to where you know you had your kids a little bit later. I probably passed on more of that than I want to know that I did, just by virtue of of we try to do better, but we don't do better enough. <laughs> and my my son, you know, Alex was the most in touch, emotional, emotionally available of my two sons, as far as you know he he, but he still obviously didn't feel like he, he didn't ever wanted to burden anybody with anything, mm -hmm. you know, all these things that are, that are hallmark of just having to man up and deal with it. And I don't need to, I don't need to burden anybody and I don't need to, you know, say, yes, I need to go to more counseling or whatever. So how do we, how do we redefine it for the younger generations? Somebody recently said, wouldn't it be nice if going to see 
the therapist and the counselor was as easy to say as I've got to go get a checkup or I need to go get my blood work done or fill in the blank, all the things that we do about our physical health. And on some level, so readily talk to people about, I mean, and we don't want to do that. We don't want to tell work we're taking a day off because we need to go to our therapy appointment or fill in the blank, whatever it is. Or we a lot of times still lie about whatever it is we're doing to care for our mental health. So I don't know how we get there. I know I don't expect you to have the answer. That's why we're having these conversations. (laughs) But I don't know if you saw it, but last night MTV and the Jed Foundation worked together and had a documentary that was out at nine o'clock last, well, it was nine o'clock my time. So it would have been 6 p.m. your time called Each and Every Day. And it was, I may be wrong here, 11-ish suicide attempt survivors, all young adults that had um, attempted suicide and survived in their mid to late teens, early 20s. And they were all on. And the consistent, my husband said to me at one point, the consistent, persistent thing they kept coming back to was the stigma yeah. that existed with talking about their mental health. And so they just didn't. And so the, that was the main thing. They were very diverse. Um, and so kids that had, had dealt with a lot of stigma anyway, but then, you know, talking about how in the black community and in the South Asian community, how those are even worse stigmas than a lot of us may realize that we're not yeah. raised in those diverse cultures yeah. and that they just weren't allowed to talk about it. And in thinking about our conversation today, I even mentioned to my husband, I said, because he's the one who said last night, you know, all these kids said that they just didn't want to talk about it. But a lot of it still comes back to one of the young people said when she went to her counselor and said that she was having thoughts of suicide and thought that she was suicidal, that the counselor at high school looked at her and said, now, are you really? And Unfortunately, that's that's why so many conversations have to happen because we have to reach not only the people that need to talk, but we have to reach the people that are there to listen and make them really willing to listen because something that goes around in the suicide loss space and in the loss space in general where I exist online a lot is a saying that has something goes something like when someone dies by suicide, everybody very quickly says I sure wish they had talked to me. I sure wish they had told me something was wrong. However, when our friend comes to us with a mental health concern and says, I'm feeling suicidal or I'm depressed, we say, oh, why are you coming to me? So it's kind of that double-edged sword. We have to be willing to listen. We have to be willing to talk and to tell people that there is help and that it is recoverable. Everything that we're feeling is a human condition and it can be better tomorrow or given time that it isn't that suicide is just a, you know, quick problem solver, but it's not going to, in the long run, it's not going to do what they think it is. And they talked about how it tainted their thinking that they thought that nobody, you know, people talk about suicide as a selfish act. And those of us that have lost, I mean, everybody's loss is a little different, but my son was the farthest thing from selfish of any person I knew on the planet, let alone my child. And they get into that dark moment and their brain tells them otherwise they just want the pain to go away. Yeah. I I think that's a really good point that most people, and this happens a lot with celebrity deaths. So Robin Williams, you know, um, killed himself in 2014, I think. 15. Um, Is it 15? I think. 
And I remember just the vitriol online uh, and even members of my family said, and they didn't mean it to be cruel, but they were like, how could he kill himself? He has everything. He's rich, he's famous, he's blah, blah, blah. And people can't equate, you know, if you have everything in your life that, you know, you check this box. I got the big house, I got the big car, I got the big job, I got the blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah, well, how could you possibly depress? It has nothing to do with any of that. Right. Um, and that's actually where I started to think about it a little bit more. Um, and Anthony Bourdain was the same thing, right? Chris Cornell, all of these, you know, celebrities, rock stars that, that have Spade. made it. Correct. And Kate Spade was, you know, another example. And they were all around the same time, I think, Chris Cornell and Kate Spade. Um, and, you know, I, had, I actually, I think I shared with you, I started a podcast for a similar purpose for you. I, it's called Laugh Your Cry Out. And I've had two guests on. And in part was to start having conversations around depression, anxiety, and then kind of make fun of ourselves in the process, not about the actual disorder, but some of the byproducts or some of the byproducts of the behavior, because they are kind of funny. I mean, Larry David made a career out of <laughs> mocking his own anxiety. And, and that's kind of where I'm going with my book, which is me making fun of me for most of the book. Um, and it's entertaining that way because you're like, oh, okay, this guy's a little bit nuts, but at least he's no longer taking himself seriously. And then if you can begin to laugh at yourself a little bit, then you can laugh with other people because you can relate. And then if everyone starts laughing with one another, <laughs> then we stop laughing at one another. And that gets to the point where you were talking about, will people then come forward? So the first guy that I interviewed um, was a guy named Brian Bihar. And he's a showrunner for Fuller House, a television show. And he, he lost his father to suicide 12 years ago. And the reason that I know who he is, is that we're, we had a mutual friend on Facebook. And he would post articles that he started writing in 2015 about his father's suicide. And then he would write about his insecurities growing up. And he would write about his depression and his anxiety. And he's a brilliant writer and he's a total mensch and I love him. So I was like, I got to get you on the show. And we talked for two and a half hours, which I, I was going to like an hour podcast, our podcast, but no, <laughs> it was two and a half hours. And we just, and we just, you know, we had this freewheeling discussion where, you know, we would laugh. We found some humor in everything. Like I was standing over my little brother because I pulled him out of the tub. So he's naked. And I live in San Francisco and I just got back from a motorcycle ride. So I'm wearing full leathers, right? I look like a member of the village people. And so when the paramedics come in, <laughs> they freak out. They call the cops and they say, it's domestic violence. Like this guy killed his lover. And so when the cops came in, they pulled me aside and said, this is a crime scene. You can't be, I'm like, what the, What are you talking about? <laughs> crime scene. I mean, cause I was fogged. I didn't have any brain function. And, you know, I shared that with Brian and he shared with me that, you know, when his, his brother was, uh, bipolar and had attempted suicide. And so when his mom called him to say, Hey, your father is dead. He said, Matt is dead. And he said, your father. And he said, Matt. And he goes, and then we had an Abbott Costello routine, dad, Matt, dad, Matt. And, and, he, and so he laughed his, through his pain. I laughed with him on that front. And as I shared with Brian on the show, the reason that I was so happy to procure him as my first guest is because it's very hard to find people that want to talk about anxiety and depression. And even more difficult to find someone that can find some level of humor in their own behaviors and what took place with them after the loss 
and then how they deal with it, right? It's just the human condition. Can you start to laugh? He goes to a therapist, his Israeli therapist, as he talks uh, about her and how much he loves her. I went to therapy for eight years to unpeel all of this anxiety around my dad and my upbringing and my brother's death and all of that. And it was really cathartic. And I think what's neat about that discussion and, and my, these shows are still in the can, they're not being released for a while because I have to get more before my publicist releases them. But the whole purpose of the show is to do exactly what you're doing, Melissa. I want people to, to chime in, just listen in and say, oh my God, Okay. So I'm not alone. I'm not the only person that, you know, overthinks where I parked my car (laughs) and I can't, I can't, (laughs) I can't concentrate in my office because I think I'm going to get a parking ticket and I'm completely obsessed with it. And, or whatever silly thing you did the night before, you know, that you can't get out of your head because you're full of anxiety. And then that anxiety builds on itself. And then you actually have a panic attack and collapse and (laughs) which very, there's not too many funny things about panic attacks, but I've had so many of them. I have to laugh at them. (laughs) And then the second, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. And the second guest I had on was exactly what you're talking about. So he was a young man named uh, Lucas Wolf who wrote a book called My Perfect Life. And it was about his six years of suicidal ideation all the way from junior high and high school to actually graduating from Penn State. And the book is, it covers that period. So he started having these, thoughts of death. He wanted out. And he said, and that's the perfect name of his book was perfect life because he has loving parents um, who were very attentive and full of discipline. And he was going to college, following his grandpa, his dad, they all went to Penn state. His twin brother went there with him. Um, He was on campus in the dorms with his mates. Everything was perfect. And he said he went to a Penn State game with his dad and his twin brother and they get the nosebleed seats and he looks over the top and he sees, I could just jump off this right now and I could end it all. And he realized like, I'm in trouble, <laughs> right? This is, not where I'm, this is not where a high school kid's supposed to be. He knew he was going to attend the university at some point, but he was starting to have these ideations early on. And then his book talks about that. And so we talked about this and this interview took place yesterday. And I asked him, and this is where I was way off, and I'm sure you're much more versed in this, but I just assumed that kids in high school in 2011, when this was happening, had had mental health as part of the curriculum, as part of the discussion, as part of, you know, because like we've already mentioned, our, our generation didn't, right? Not only do we not have it, it was kind of taboo to even talk about. Right. But, I mean, we, we were barely having sex ed. So there's that. I mean, we definitely weren't talking about mental health issues. No, at all. But so I just, and I said that to him, I said, man, I, I did not know this. <laughs> I assumed that you and your generation were talking about this. And, you know, because you see that we have celebrities that are now very vocal about this. Justin Bieber has been very vocal about his depression. Demi Lovato has been struggling hard with hers. Um, Billie Eilish has all of this woven into the narratives of her songs. And so you're just like, oh, these young kids are much more you know, communicative than we were. And it turns out that that's just not accurate. It's, it's maybe because you and I are aware of it and we right. hear the words. And so we're like, oh, okay, they, they're using the words. You know, they, they talk, they know they can say, I'm, I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling anxious. I'm doing whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I still don't think... And this young man that I referenced, Lucas, said that the Gen Z 
you know, the high schools, the junior highs, uh, even my little boys, elementary school, they have mindfulness meditations. They're teaching children now to breathe and to do little cute things. Like my, my seven-year-old, when he's starting to get emotional, they, they trace his hand like a tur- you know, they, so it, it helps him breathe. And, and it's like, okay, buddy, you know, he's emotional. Like, hey, let's trace your hand. Let's take a pause and let's figure out what's going on. And that's happening at the elementary school level. And from what he shared with me yesterday, it is happening, you know, uh, in junior high and high school now, but it, it hasn't for, especially when your, when your son was there. I was going to say, I don't think it was happening. I mean, my, my oldest graduated, I had 2012, 14 and 16. So Alex would have graduated in 2014. And at some point they all overlapped with being, you know, that close in age. And I don't think, I mean, yeah, I was, no, there wasn't. I mean, I want to say, I don't remember there being any mental health or, or active minds. Now, after we lost Alex, Parker had just graduated. My youngest had just graduated in May and then we lost Alex in August. So I didn't have any more kids left in that high school, but they had all gone to that high school. Two of them, you know, graduated with international baccalaureate degrees. So I had been very involved in many and they were both varsity athletes and all of that. And, and so I had been very involved at the school and my daughter, the oldest reached out to me, Alex died in August and she reached out to me in January of that following year. So only about four or five months after Alex was gone and said, did you hear Northtown is having their first ever stop the stigma mental health awareness week? And I said, Hmm. wow, no. And I immediately reached out to the advisor who I knew as a former teacher of my kids and said, I have no idea how I'm going to do this, but if you'll have me, I would like to speak on suicide awareness day because of the five days, one of them was suicide awareness day. Mm. Um, They had eating disorders and, you know, all the mental health issues that, and so they had that chapter that had been formed by somebody to my knowledge. I'm not sure if it still exists, but I think that there, I know that active minds has chapters all across the United States and it's one of the more um, involved ones. Actually, Justin Bieber just spoke, they had a virtual conference this year because, of course, everything's virtual right now. But they're, the Active Minds National Conference is yesterday, today, and tomorrow virtually. Oh, and wow. Justin Bieber was actually someone who gave an opening message today. I haven't, because of my life, I wasn't able to participate, meaning watch the conference. But I've been kind of plugged in on social media and seeing what's happened. And so we are seeing more and more and more of that now. <sighs> It makes me so sad that it's taken this this epidemic to be at the height that it is in order to get it. But yet we just we just keep pushing forward, knowing that I've often said that I remember when we were young, if you would have talked about when when they first started talking about breast cancer, I talk about how taboo and then it eventually went to that comedic place where we're, we're saving the tatas and all those things they did to get yeah. the comfort level where we now have Susan G. Komen and everybody's company on the planet wears pink t-shirts and, you know, all yeah. the things that happen. The same thing, our generation's probably equivalent to that was when MAD was formed um, and you started seeing cars yeah. on the lawns of the high school. And that was such a taboo groundbreaking thing to be talking about then and so we can only hope that this generation's is to start turning around the stigma of mental health and realizing that mental health is, is I've heard, had people say, well, why all of a sudden do we have so many mental health issues? Well, guess what? We live in a society that has more pressure, more stress, more 
look at the stuff we have coming at us. The fact that you and I can sit clear across the country, we could be clear across the world and be on live yeah. video with each other as opposed to, you know, what we had back when you and I were kids. Right. It's we what we've put our, our our brains have not evolved to to handle anything more than it used to handle back at 1900. But yet, look at the pace of life and the amount of information yeah. that's coming at us. That as adults, we're expected to absorb. How are kids supposed to absorb it without knowing they have to care for themselves and be mindful and all the things that is now happening. So do you talk actively to your children about mindfulness and mental health? Um, and- yes. Mindfulness for sure. Because what I try to explain to them, you know, as little boys is that when they get emotional I say, Hey, Hey, who's in, who's in charge of your brain? And they go, I am daddy. I'm like, all right. So your brain's like your computer, right? If your computer's malfunctioning, shut, shut the computer. Oh, okay. And so they understand at that level, at a spiritual level, I'm trying to explain to them is the difference between ego and consciousness, right? So like there's, and that, I can't explain that yet in that vernacular, but what I'm trying to explain to them is that, hey, 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 you're in charge, you know, you're, don't, it's okay to be emotional, but understand that it took you over right there, right? You just punched your brother in the face. Why? Well, he punched me first. I said, Why did you punch your brother? <laughs> well, because he did this. I'm like, okay, guys, but you don't have to punch each other, right? That's not nice. Do you love him? Yeah. Do you ever see me hit Uncle Paul? You know, my brother. No. I said, do you see Uncle Paul and I yell at each other? No. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so then you can't either. Oh, okay. And over the years, now they're nine and seven, they get along so well. And it's a big a, a part of that is that they understand through modeling how to act. You know, I grew up in a less than optimal situation, right? Um, and these toxic males that ruined my life or didn't ruin my life that attempted to ruin my life, um, were all I had as models. And so what my little boys have as models is me and my brother and my wife, we live in a quiet home. Um, I do not yell at my wife. We argue like any couple, but because I grew up the way I did, I promised her when we fell in love, I'll never raise my voice to you. And I said, I'll disappoint you. (laughs) I'll do stupid things, but you know, there'll be no yelling in our house and there isn't. So my little boys have that. And that's actually part of the podcast too, is that the men that I, the men and women that I bring on that are vocal about their anxiety, their depression, uh, why they're telling their stories. You know, the thing that you're doing, which is the same thing everyone I'm talking to is that we're trying to tell a story so that other people feel less alone. And that's, those are the heroes in our culture to me. I want my little boys to look up to people like that as opposed to looking down on them, which is what I was taught. You know, if people have mental illness, then, hey, stay away from them because they're scary and they might hurt you and or they're going to hurt other people and or you just don't want to be around them or, you know, and it wasn't a collective menace, uh, a menacing decision. It was just that we were scared of things we didn't understand back then. And I think that, you know, if there's shows on television now, um, the superpowers of dude or the healing powers of dude, I think is a show, um, on Netflix about a little boy who suffers from social anxiety disorder. And it's a, a wonderful show because he has panic attacks. And so they got him a dog, which is a, um, a comfort pet that he can take to school. And so he takes this pet to school and he befriends a couple other, you know, 
quote unquote misfits, right? Like little boys just aren't popular. And then um, they have a little girl who's handicapped, um, who's super bright and wonderful, but she's obviously had her issues being handicapped. And this little triumvirate becomes best friends. And they show the insides of this little boy's brain. So when he meets his friends for the first time, uh, this little handicapped girl uh, wheeled up in her chair and he was panicking because he was having a panic attack. And she said, can you please move? And he couldn't respond. And she's like, are you mocking me? And she's just talking to him. And and in the show, they show like his brain exploding and all these things happening. And I have yet to say to my children, hey guys, that's what happens to daddy (laughs) when he has panic attacks because it's, I don't want them to know yet. But I do want them to know when they get old enough to understand what that means. They do now understand that social anxiety disorder exists. And so when they, I said, you guys and my little boys are like your sons. They're into sports. They're very good athletes. Uh, They're leaders of their teams. They play baseball, basketball, and soccer. And they have a lot of friends. And so I said, when you see a little boy or a little girl that is out of the click, sitting by themselves, go and talk to them, bring them into your crew, be nice to them because they might be suffering from the same thing that this little boy on this television show is doing. And I just, it, it, this just popped into my head because I've watched the show with them already um, two or three times. And it's a uh, ongoing like episodic uh, show and it's wonderful. That's a show we would never have had, you know, 15, 20 years ago, which show we didn't have 10 years ago, but it really helped them to understand that people have mental issues. Like there's just something going on upstairs that they can't see. It's an invisible disease. And now they understand, oh, okay, that can happen. And they know my brother suffers from depression because we talk about it. Uncle Paul suffers from depression. What's that, daddy? It just means he's sad, you know, because those are the words that a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old could absorb. Um, But, you know, when I get older, part of my own anxiety is that my boys will inherit what I have uh, because I inherited it from my mother to some degree. And then my dad, uh, as I explained, had some, his own issues. And my mom and I joke about it. You know, when I'm having really bad days, I'll call her up and I say, Hey, I just wanted to call and uh, say, thanks for all this anxiety. (laughs) And then she'll laugh. She's like, what are you going through, honey? And I'm like, Oh God, mom, I'm just obsessing about these five things today. And I just wanted to call you and talk it through. And and then we talk and then we laugh and then we hug it out on the phone. And I say, I love you, mommy. And she said, I love you too. And, and we get off the phone. Um, and I want my kids to have that same relationship with me, you know? Um, and they're going to see the podcast and they're going to read the book at some point, you know, maybe when they're teenagers and they'll understand, you know, that when they're teenagers, they won't want to, I'm like, I'm not listening to my dad, but they will eventually. (laughs) Well, that's very true. Uh, they, but they'll at least they'll know their heroes are vulnerable because mm-hmm. as of right now, I'm their hero, right? There's nothing that I do that they're not impressed with. I'm big and strong compared to them. And I'm not big and strong. <laughs> you know, I'm 5'10", 170 pounds. I'm not a big guy, but I'm, I'm their dad. And I spend all my time loving them and taking care of them. And um, I think if we can have that same discussion, you know, if we can continue to have these discussions as they get older, uh, that was the one thing that when I was talking with this young man from Penn State, he had a he had a relationship enough with his parents to admit it. Took him years to admit it, um, and he got through it. Fortunately, right. Uh, but if my kids are suffering, 
I want them to be comfortable enough, not just with me, but with the concept of what we talked about, the stigma. There is no stigma or there should be no stigma for a nine-year-old to suffer from some kind of social anxiety or to suffer from any level of anxiety or to, if he does suffer from depression someday, that he can come and talk to us and say, dad, I had these really weird you know, feelings in my head and, and I, I'm, I'm way past sad. It's like I, I'm dark and I feel like the world is closing in on me and you know, tunnel vision and all the things that you read about and experience through your own depression, those would be recognizable triggers for me. I'd be like, all right, dude, you know, we need to get you to a therapist, right? And you might need some medication. I don't know that for a fact, but you know, these are, okay, these are okay things, right? Well, and it, exactly. And in retrospect, I mean, hindsight is, um, I, I don't feel like I have, I don't have a lot of regrets where um, things I did or didn't do with my son are concerned because I I know he knew he was loved. I know he, there isn't, you know, we had a very, you know, life wasn't perfect, but we had a good life and, and we were very close. I know that he knew how much he was loved and I know that I did as much as I could with what I had at the time. I wish I had had somebody say to me or I had the way of knowing ahead of time that it was more okay than I felt like it was to ask him if he was having thoughts of harming himself, if he was suicidal. We had one brief thing come up about that and I was crying like a mom would and it was never brought up again. My son never heard him talk about whether he had had any suicidal thoughts. And too many people think that if you ask somebody if they're having thoughts of suicide, that that actually will cause them to be more suicidal. It's actually the opposite. They need to hear that because if someone is having suicidal ideation and they're asked if they're having suicidal ideation, they feel like you're listening to them suddenly. They feel yep. like it gives them permission to say, actually, yes, I am. The more we dance around something, the more we're making it taboo. So therefore, the more they know they can't bring it up because we can't even bring it up. Therefore, how could they talk to us about it? Right. right? How long How long ago did that discussion happen before he, before he died? When did you have that chat with him? <clears throat> He started seeing a counselor his the semester before the the spring semester, and he died before the fall semester started. And so it was probably somewhere around March, and he was seeing a counselor for just that couple of months. Barely, the counseling services are very broken at a lot of colleges. Waiting lines, all sorts of things. They want to just throw pills at him when they haven't even really diagnosed him. It's just not a very healthy situation, but. So somewhere around March is when he said he had even had a thought of harming himself. And I, of course, started crying and said, Alex, what in the world? And he said, no, 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 mom, it's okay. I promise. Probably because I just cried. And then had I been educated enough in the months that followed, I would have used the word suicide. I would have said, are you still having harm thoughts of harming yourself? I would have been more forward thinking, but I, in my mind, shut kind of that out. And if I didn't consciously think if I talk about it, he's more susceptible to it. But I know now that that was there, that I was afraid, like, I'm not going to just, 
I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about it because like, is that encouragement? It's not encouragement. You're not encouraging somebody. Um, That is not what talking to someone about whether they're suicidal does. It it gives them, it gives them a permission slip. It gives them um, a safe place to talk because if you're willing to say, are you suicidal? Are you thinking yeah. of harming yourself? Because you realize if you are, there's help for that. And I'm here to listen and let's get resources and all the things that you can do. Instead of he brought it up. I lost my shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> shit. Can't talk to mom about that anymore. Um, and, and and is that what he really thought in his conscious mind? Maybe not. But in his subconscious mind, I think that was that may have been the message I gave him. And that may be the first time I've said that out loud is I may have, and I'm not saying, I I know it's not my fault. Um, Probably, but that's, that's where we have to change as people that are more willing to meet people where they are, even when it's in a dark place. Correct. But I am glad you caught yourself there because this isn't your fault. (laughs) Right. And, and that one response didn't trigger him even subconsciously, right? I think the fact that if a, a son shares with his mom that he has suicidal ideation and she doesn't cry, <laughs> that that might be a bigger issue. I think that my mom does the same thing. And I have this conversation with her a lot where I wish I'd have done this different. I wish I'd have done this. I could have done this. You know, I'm like, mom, you were so loving. You were a wonderful mom. And he knew that. He said that to us all the time. And I made the joke because, you know, when Stevie would talk about offing himself, I'd say, dude, you can't because then I'm stuck with mom. <laughs> like I have to deal with a crushed mother. And I said, and that's not fair. And I said, by the way, I'll bring you back to life and kick your ass. And so he, he would laugh and, and we would laugh about that, but it's just be gentle with yourself there because it's not, there's, there is nothing, and you know, this from your homework, there is nothing we could have done as a family period. It doesn't matter how much love you show them because you obviously loved him. You were a good mommy. He knew that. Your sons know that. Your daughter knows that. It's 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 not about you. The level of despair that, and I don't know if you've ever suffered depression, but when I'm in a hole, uh, uh, there's just nothing that calms you. And so if he got there, which it sounds like he did, um, that's that's the area we can't discuss. No matter who right. we are, survivors, we don't know what went on in other people's heads. We don't know why they made the last decision they made. Um, and it, it is an out. It's like, this is so painful, no matter what happens, I can't let it happen anymore. Right. And so your discussion, and this is just me, I'm, you know, I'm not a therapist, I'm not trained in any way, but I've read copious amounts on this, specifically around mommies, because I was worried about my own mom. Um, she didn't sleep, you know, for months after he passed and I'm sure you didn't either. I and still don't did, sleep correctly. I may never sleep correctly again. No, but yeah. she doesn't either. And and so like she went to a doctor and she said, I'm depressed. And he said, why? And she said, well, my son died, you know, two months ago. And he said, okay, when's the last time you slept? And she said, I haven't. And he said, well, okay, well then we're not here to medicate you. <laughs> we're here to give you sleeping pills. You need to sleep. Like, and that's the one thing that people don't really understand is that if you don't sleep, you lose your mind. Like you actually go crazy. Um, And so my mom was going crazy. And then once they actually got her some sleep, then they could help her with medication, which she's still on um, in small doses. I just, I went on a tangent there, but just be gentle with yourself, Melissa. It's not about you. 
There's nothing you could have oh, done. Oh, I, I know. I know it's not. I, I absolutely know it's not. Um, that doesn't. <clears throat> That doesn't change the fact that mom guilt is a real thing and that nope, to, to, elim- to eliminate every ounce of that, I'm very honest and I say there's no way you'll ever erase every ounce of that because at the end of the day, the three children that I brought on the earth, those are my biggest job yep. and keeping them safe was all that I cared about. So that piece, I just acknowledge that it's there. I give it a place. I give it a space. But I know in my mind, I know in my my heart, um, that there wasn't anything else that I that I could have done. Good. You know, he has grandmas that feel the same way. He has whatever. We all, we all. He just got into a dark place and a dark moment and made a decision that he couldn't undo. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt he would undo it if he could. I know he didn't want to to die. Um, that's the thing people don't understand about most people that are suicidal mm-hmm. is they don't truly want to die. They just want the pain to end. And Correct. being able to start having conversations and watching these young people on this show last night, um, that's what has to happen more is we we have to we have to you know get out of the verbiage of telling them to man up and deal with it or um telling them you know that it's going to be okay you know all the the cliches that people say well just think happy thoughts or all the stupid stuff that they even <laughs> say to grievers like yeah. really if that was possible don't you think i might have already tried that i mean i'm yeah. just saying so we have to give them permission to say how they're really feeling and not necessarily offer an immediate solution, but let them know that it can get better, that there are, is help out there. And that in some level, our humanness, we all have it, you know, we mm-hmm. all have it. It's, it's the human condition, right? So it's just about having more conversation and permission to be flawed and yep. to not have to be perfect and, just making it more okay. And so that's why we keep talking. And I would like before we kind of wrap this up for today for you to talk a little bit more, at least to let us know all of all the things that you kind of have planned. I know you've touched on your podcast. I know your book is called Joey Somebody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And I know that you also have, have the title if you look on your website or it says coach. So you apparently have plans to kind of stay in the arena of depression, anxiety, humor that goes along with it and those things. So kind of where do you see this going for you? Where can people find you? And I, of course, will include all of this in the show notes, but I'd like to have you kind of talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I I think the podcast as I've shared is, is exactly what you're doing. I want to have people on the show to talk. Um, and laugh and cry and and just get it out. And that way, when people listen, they feel less alone. Um, and the book is the same thing. The book covers all the things we talked about briefly. There's a lot of machismo in there. There's a lot of, uh, I had heroes that I explained. Um, and I think that whoever you look up to in life is who you want to emulate. And if you're focused on goals like I am, I became a douchebag because my heroes were douchebags. And so I want my little boys to have different heroes. I want them to look up to Mr. Lee, their third grade teacher. I want them to look up to the two men that I just had on my show, who, because they are brave, they are vulnerable, they're kind, they're intelligent, um, and they're doing good in the world. They are doing something in the service of others, right? And then I had a 20-year executive career, um, which I'm very proud of. 
I had a wonderful time in the ad business. Um, my business partners and I uh, won a lot of awards as an agency. We worked with some of the biggest brands in the country. Um, we had a wonderful team of 50 plus people that I worked with for years, um, many of whom are dear friends to this day. Uh, one of whom is my wife, who I met. We hired her to work on the Verizon account. And it was a wonderful career. And so the coaching side of my business now is I'm working with executives who are burned out, who are trying to figure out how to make a, a transition in their life or a pivot. Um, and it doesn't mean they have to leave corporate America like I did, but it might mean that they can take a step back um, and assess what they're doing and take a little bit of more time you know, with themselves, to be gentle with themselves, to take a little bit more time for their health, their physical health, their mental health, their time with their spouse, their children, whatever it may be, because I've gone through this. Um, and this last three years of staying home, writing and coaching with my little boys, is I, I looked around <laughs> for the first time in years. And, and when you're in the business, you know, of the advertising business, um, you work a lot of hours. It's 60 plus hours a week. It's pitches, it's travel on airplanes, it's conferences, it's keynote presentations. You're constantly on the go. And at the time I loved it. Um, but you know, with little kids, I didn't want to be away. I didn't want to be on a plane a hundred thousand miles a year. And so the coaching side of my business is that I'm, I'm working with, with executives in the media space specifically because I understand what they're going through. Um, and a lot of times we start, you know, my first session is like, what do you want to get out of this? And if they say, I want to make more money, I'm like, well, that's cool, man. I'm not your guy. <laughs> You're doing <laughs> there's, there's guys for that, there's, but that's there's, not what. <laughs> yeah. There's growth coaches out there, executive coaches out there. You know, I am more of a transitional coach. If I'm trying to, if you want to do something different, right? If you want to not necessarily change careers, but even if you want to dial back a little bit on your career and, or if you want to move careers, right? If you've always wanted to do something and you have the wherewithal now to do that, are you brave enough to make that decision? And if you are, then I'm the right guy for you. I'll help you get through that. Um, and, you know, I have a, a CMO who is a very powerful executive and she works with a lot of toxic males. And so I'm helping her <laughs> with her new role because she has, you know, it's a 4,000 person organization. It's global. She is a, the only C-level uh, female executive. And so that's another thing that I'm helping her with. Um, and it's, it's gratifying for me because I've been the corporate arrogant jerk. So when she's kind of talking about, well, this guy did this and he thinks he knows everything. And I'm like, did he say this? And did he say that? she's like, yes. And I'm like, okay, I did that too. Um, guys are guys in the corporate boardroom and, and sorry, but this is kind of how we are. Um, so yeah, those are the three things that I'm doing in my, in my career now. Um, fortunately, um, I'm able to do that. Um, and then for me personally, it's been the most gratifying thing I've ever done to, to get this book out there, to share people that I'm nervous about life that I still, I mean, I, I was pretty good on the panic attacks until I started writing <laughs> and then they just, and I even started talking about it. Um, it, it brings up a lot of stuff, but I've gone through enough therapy now that I can recognize it. I can shut it down. And then I'm cool. It doesn't take over my body anymore. It doesn't, you know, take me out for the day like it used to. Um, but yeah, that's what I'm doing now, Melissa. So thanks for asking. It's um, 
Well, no, thanks for sharing. And, you know, you, you give hope to DBs everywhere out there, right? So that, so that um, if, if I had a, a dime for every, you know, I shared with you briefly that I spent, I spent time uh, climbing the chef ladder and um, talk about a male dominated world. Um, yes, it, is. it still is. And, and I was with the railroad for a while. So I was double dipping there because that's a man's world. And so that you've got, you've got the, and I wish I was a little bit more um, here. Here's the irony. I wish I was a little bit more who I am now then because I needed somebody like you, because I just had no problem going straight up and dealing. I'm five foot two and I had no problem dealing <laughs> with those egoist personalities because man, and, and to say, I, to say, I don't have any ego. I have to have, or I wouldn't have made it to where I was, but not yeah. the same as men do. It's not, it's not mm-hmm. the same. And I was still underpaid for who I, I was. All of that still existed. And <clears throat> I don't want anything to do with it now, but you know, I'm the same way. If somebody says, Oh my gosh, I would sure. Have you ever thought about teaching people to cook? Yeah. I've been there, done that. I don't want to do that now. That's not who I am. I want to, help people um, normalize grief. I am working on multiple certifications to work with mindfulness and meditation and energy work and all sorts of things that, that are because of who I am now and what I know, what I know. And, and I have found um, a calling and a purpose that makes me feel more driven than anything has in my life. And yet I would do everything I could to change it and go back and not have to be in this place. But but I am so not only for myself, but for my son, I mm-hmm. am going to spend the rest of my life doing everything I can to continue the conversation and to help grievers know that it's okay to grieve. You have to learn, yeah. especially mothers and fathers, because you're right there. I mean, I've experienced other loss. I haven't lost a sibling, but I've lost parents. I've lost, you know, I've lost, this is a special grief. And so I feel like, teaching people to live alongside of it. I'm never going to be okay. I'm never going to be through that. Cause I guess what? I'm always going to love my son. Mm-hmm. So because the love for my son will never go away, neither is the grief. It's just about learning to live with it successfully and um, learning to uh, make something. I don't want to say make something good out of it. Cause that's not the right words. Again, words fail us so often, but at any well, rate, I think that's your, that's kind of what I touched on earlier is that you have the empathy necessary to help others. And there will sadly be many others, right? Um, and that, that's, that, that was the only silver lining that I've ever found in that level of grief is that when you get through it and you start to let go of it bit by bit, you know, I don't think of Stevie every day anymore. Um, and what I do, a lot of it's fond memories you know, it's his big hugs or it's a, one of his favorite songs or something he used to say that was really funny. Um, and as mentioned, that level of empathy can't be found. It can't be manufactured. You can't fake it. And, and if you're talking with people who had this, the same devastating loss, you will help them. You will help them get through it. And that is maybe the biggest honor for Alex, right? Is that you're, he knows wherever he is, depending on wherever you believe he is, he's watching, he understands like, okay, my mom's now helping people so that this doesn't happen. Oh, he's haunting me is what he's doing. He's haunting (laughs) me. Um, (laughs) That's a, that's a thing. And, and, and a very good, Mike, my boys always enjoyed scaring me. And um, 
Alex still, still enjoys it. it. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, well, I, I, I think we'll, in order to not have a two and a half hour episode, I think that <laughs> this is a really good place with us kind of chuckling and to, to end this, I will indeed put in the show notes, all of the connections to you. So that anybody that's listening can connect or find you if they want to. Thank you. Thank you this has much. been a pure pleasure, even though the subject matter isn't necessarily all pleasurable. So no, it's not. I, pr- I appreciate you coming on and who knows, you know, maybe in future we'll go a different direction and we'll talk again at some point. So that'd be great. Thanks for I, having me. I really appreciate it. And we'll talk, we'll talk soon. Okay. Cheers. Grievers. It is my hope that from today you will take that which serves you and simply leave the rest. If you connect with what you have heard, Please subscribe to get notified of my new episodes every week, and please feel free to share it with others in the suicide loss community. If you are so led, I would also be honored if you would leave a review so that others might find us more easily. You can find me and all ways to connect with me at my Instagram, The Leftover Pieces. I want you to know that I know how very, very hard life is now. It's true that we will never be the same but we are going to be okay. We will figure this out somehow, together. And we will keep our loved ones with us because there is no getting over or past grief, only learning to live more gracefully alongside it. Only through talk can we keep their memories alive, learn to live again, and bring some awareness so that less will suffer. Join me again next week and we will keep the talk going. We will sign off today, as always, with the wise words of my Alex's favorite, Peter Pan. Never say goodbye, because goodbye means going away, and going away means forgetting. Grievers, no one here is forgetting. Talk soon.